I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode, we talk with Kathy Novelli, president of Listening for America. We discuss the group's new report on how Americans view their connections with the global economy. Kathy and her team visited 37 cities across 13 states and came up with some fascinating conclusions. Stay tuned for this and more on The Trade Guys. Well, good afternoon and welcome back to The Trade Guys. Bill and I are delighted to have a special guest today on the program, Kathy Novelli, who's a longtime friend of trade and of the two of us. We're delighted to finally have her on the podcast. Kathy was, a, for many years, a uh, negotiator at the Office of U.S. Trade Representatives, rising to the assistant USTR for Europe and the Middle and the Mediterranean. Uh, she was the lead negotiator for the United States on the free trade agreements with, let's see, Jordan, Morocco, Bahrain, and Oman. So four of the 20 countries we have free trade agreements with Kathy was the key negotiator. So she left the government for the private sector for a while, was an executive uh, with Apple, and then returned as Undersecretary of State for Economic Growth, Energy, and the Environment. And uh, uh, since she left the State Department, she's been working on this project that we'd love to talk to her about today. The project is called Listening for America, uh, and it's all about connecting people with international trade. Kathy, welcome. Thank you so much. I am honored to be here and honored to be with you, my my colleagues, for, for so long. Let's uh, start right in. You spent several years traveling around and talking to people and listening to them, which is unusual in Washington. Mostly in Washington, we talk. We don't listen. So you did the reverse, which probably means you learned more than we did. So uh, tell us a little bit first what you did and how you did it. And then more importantly, tell us what you found out. Okay, well, I started this project because I was uh, actually dispatched during the Obama administration to talk about the TPP. And it was very clear to me, being born and raised in the Midwest, I was dispatched to the Midwest and it was clear to me that there was a huge disconnect about what was in the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and there was a lot of hostility towards it, even among people who you would normally think would be favorable to trade. So after the end of the administration, I decided to go try to figure out what people really thought about trade and globalization and how it was affecting their lives. And so I started in the Midwest. Um, I had some volunteers who worked with me, former USTR folks, and we started in the Midwest and branched out from there, talking to people from all walks of life. And we really tried to our best to informally have a cross sampling of people from rural areas, from agriculture, people who worked in factories, people who were executives. So, so a broad range, as well as talking to mayors and some economic planners of cities. And then we branched out from there across the country. And we also added in focus groups to what we were doing so we could have a little bit more of a scientific representative sample 
as we went from city to city. And we went to well over 40 cities. We tried to go across the U.S. and hit all every region. We couldn't really hit every state. And um, we found that people actually had a pretty positive view of globalization. They had a negative view of trade agreements, which is counter to at least a lot of conventional wisdom here in terms of people's attitudes toward globalization. They saw advantages from that. The other thing that we found is that Everybody we talked to started off by saying, you know, this subject is really complex and I don't really understand it. And um, I'm not really sure where to go to get unbiased information. And that was also something that ran through all of our conversations of people felt that the media was biased, regardless of their political persuasion. The other thing that we found is that Port cities tended to have people who were a little bit more aware of various issues around trade, even if they weren't working for the port. And part of the time that we were doing this was right when President Trump was putting on tariffs on Chinese products and we were going to places like Greenville, South Carolina that had a huge BMW plant in Charleston. And and people said, whoa, wait a minute, you know, this is going to really harm us. Also, interestingly, when we were in the Midwest, uh, was when there was a lot of talk about trying to end NAFTA before it was renegotiated. And we actually found people were not in favor of that, including people who worked in factories. Uh, there was a real concern that that was going to harm them. So, you know, it was it was interesting. The other thing we found pretty much across the board, was folks were really worried about the environment. They were worried about the environmental impacts of trade. And they were also worried about, you know, is there unfairness here? And what does that mean? At the same time, no one really was that concerned about buying American. We asked people that, were like, do you take that into account? And the answer was pretty much no. The other thing that won't surprise you is that small businesses were really engaged in trade, a lot of times not even realizing that they were part of the global chain. And certainly no realization really that there were trade agreements out there that were facilitating their ability to access the world. So there were a lot of myths also there. One of the biggest ones was that um, people were convinced that China was our largest trading partner. We asked people, well, how how much of a percent of our trade do you think comes from China? And we got numbers. The lowest number we got was 50%. But a lot of people thought it was in the 80s. So that was really interesting. And we had like a little pie chart that showed people what, you know, sort of how things broke out with our largest trading partners. And that if you added up the countries of the EU, that was way bigger than China. And uh, folks were just amazed by that. Poor Canada left in the left in the lurch again. I mean, our largest trading partner basically since the two countries were formed, and yet nobody thinks of it that way. So yeah, exactly, exactly. So that was also you know another finding. I think we came away from it really feeling that it was important to think about how to educate the general public. I mean, our our whole point was, how do we have 
people have input so that we don't have this big divide that I found when I was out there talking about the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And so that we actually got, you know, honest input from people. And, you know, I think it's hard to do that when folks say this is confusing and I don't really understand even what it is and don't really understand their how they are situated in the global world in terms of it affecting their daily life. We asked people what they thought were the most important issues that the country faced. They never put trade as one of those. Some people put the economy, but not that many. There were lots of other things that were on people's mind, even during COVID, because we did some Zoom things during COVID and COVID would get raised, but it wasn't, you know, the primary thing that people were worried about sort of on a more long-term basis. This really tracks other data that's appeared over the years. I recall probably more than 15 years ago, the uh, Business Roundtable did a survey that asked people uh, their feelings about globalization. And this was before a lot of the trade agreements that were, were, were on. Actually, it was more than, well, yeah, it was about 15 years ago. So it was before most of the trade agreements that we're talking about, not, not before NAFTA. And the, the, the prevailing attitude seemed to be, well, you know, it's here. We may not like it very much, but the right thing to do is deal with it. You know, it's not going to go away and we have to cope. The other thing that has shown up rather consistently, and I'd like to ask you a little bit more about this, is the sort of the priorities question. Pew Research Center has been asking people for years, what are the biggest problems the country has? Until recently, trade was always last. The big three, and they changed from year to year, so it wasn't constant, were uh, the economy, health, and terrorism. As I said, you know, if you go back far enough, you, know, you can see all three. Talk to us a little bit maybe about the politics of that. I mean, my, my inference from that has been that you know, there may be a handful of congressional districts out there where people are really invested in trade because they've had a direct personal experience with it, maybe a negative one, like a large plant closed or, or moved to Mexico or China or something like that. But most people don't really focus on that that much, which means that members of Congress, it seems to me, can pretty much vote any way they want on trade and not suffer any consequences, which allows them really to be out of step with the opinions that you're talking about. You know, it's interesting, Bill. One of the things that, that really struck me is that if you wanted to move forward with a more aggressive trade agenda, there's plenty of political space for that. I think what needs to happen, though, is that you need to be explaining what you're doing up front and then having people be able to express concerns if they have them, but then being able to have a discussion. That's what I found. That's what we found as we went around that, you know, there were folks who had concerns and they would ask us questions. We went to listen, but they would ask us questions about things and so we would answer them and we tried to answer them in just a purely factual manner. And it was really interesting to see like their opinion about things evolve. And we found a lot of people, for example, were like, you know, there needs to be like an international agreement with rules that govern, you know, all of this, that people, you know, that, that helps, you know, deal with all this. And we're like, well, actually there is the World Trade Organization. But they didn't really, you know, know what that was or what was in it. 
And so I think I think there's a lot of political space. I think you're right about that. I would tell you what surprised me was the positive things that people said about globalization. We did word association and we did like pictures that we let people pick pictures that represented these things. And the pictures for globalization were things like it connects our world, it allows people to be lifted up, it gives us access to all kinds of things that we couldn't have access to. People talked a lot about getting strawberries in winter, for example. So there was a lot of positive view about globalization. I think the narrative was more on trade agreements and they're unfair and we've had a bad deal. And we would ask people, well, how is that the case? Like what, what has happened? And a lot of times people wouldn't really be able to tell, articulate anything. We also asked people, do you know anyone who's actually lost their job because their factory has moved? And we met one person who lost his job and he actually was able to retool because of trade adjustment assistance, but his factory moved from Michigan to North Carolina. So, and, and we also found that. We found when we were in Iowa, people kept talking to us about how terrible it was that this small town in Iowa that had a Maytag factory, it closed and all the jobs went to Mexico. And then we found out that it closed because Maytag was taken over by Whirlpool and the jobs went to Benton Harbor, Michigan. But trade was still blamed for it. And so I think there is this, this real kind of drumbeat that trade agreements are bad and that all it does is facilitate jobs going overseas and that we have all these less manufacturing jobs because of that. There's no discussion about automation and you know the cause of that. So I... It's a long answer to your, your point, but I think you are absolutely right that there's plenty of political space. I think people are actually open. They, they know it's complicated. And I think if their members of Congress wanted to move forward on something, they could do that as long as they were staying in touch with their populations. Did you find out about what really happened afterwards or could you tell them what happened and see what they said? No, I didn't really know. I had never heard of it. So, you know, everywhere we went, we kept hearing about it. And we found out about it because we were in a small town in Iowa. And a person that we were talking to who had been a reporter for National Public Radio, I was asking him about it because it wasn't too, the town wasn't too far from where we were. And, and he said, oh, they didn't. And he told us what really happened. So, um, so that was... That was more towards the end of our time in Iowa, but it, to me, it was very illustrative. Was there any discussion of, of party politics in this? Did people characterize the Republicans or the Democrats as being on any particular side that come no. up about it? No, we did not find that. We did not characterize it that way. You know, we really just were very, tried to be very neutral and we didn't ask people what their party affiliation were, you know, that we talked to. And really, I would say there were some, depending on when, because this was over a two year period, sometimes you would find people would all have the same talking points. <laughs> um, and when you would then say, okay, you know, whatever the talking point was, you know, China is, you know, doing this terrible thing, whatever the talking point was, 
you would say, well, you know, why do you think that? And I, I still remember someone in, in one of the small group discussions we had saying, we are just taking it in the shorts every day, just every day taking it in the shorts because of trade agreements. And so I was like, well, tell me what, you know, what is it that's happening that, you know, you think is causing that? Like, why do you say that? And she really, she had, she talked about oil in, uh, in the Middle East and, you know, it didn't really connect to trade agreements, um, which, you know, oil in the Middle East isn't even covered by trade agreements. But there was no, it didn't matter if you were a Democrat or Republican. I think the confusion about what really these agreements mean and how all these pieces fit together, that spanned party, it didn't matter. Democrat, Republican, independent, people were generally said, this is complicated and I don't understand. You know, there's a, there's a long been this this sort of negative or unfavorable narrative on trade. And for me, it's always the most, the story it's most similar to is the story of Job from the Old Testament, where Job was just doing well. He was just hanging out, doing his job, raising his family, and then boom, everything bad happens to him. And so this notion of external forces affecting your life for the negative through no fault of your own is, is, has kind of been a, a part of that story for a while. Now, when I read your report, though, there's a positive side. And I really appreciated what, what you had to say about local transformation. Local economic transformation is the upside of that. It's the narrative saying, yeah, there's change, but here's where we're going, all right? And we got to put all these pieces together. And it's that positive vision. I, w I was really struck by that because it's trade, but, but it's services and investment. It's a whole package that everybody can get along with. So could you talk a little more about that, how that transformation narrative works? Yes, for sure. And I'm glad you asked that because, you know, it, Every place that we went, I would have, you know, you, you have some preconceived ideas in your head and they were always like dashed. I mean, whatever I thought was not what it was, you know, which was really amazing. And we decided to go to Greenville, South Carolina, because we had been spending a lot of time in the Midwest and, you know, in places that were connected to the auto industry. And we knew that BMW had an auto plant there. And I had never been to Greenville, South Carolina and really know anything about it, which may be my, you know, ignorance, but I knew there was a BMW plant there. And we went there and we were just completely blown away by the transformation that had happened there. And we talked to the mayor at length about how, you know, oh, how does this happen? Like what happened? And it turned out that the mayor had been a textiles lawyer and he like helped that Greenville was a huge textile city. And so he helped the textile folks, you know, get quotas or try to stop things from coming in. I mean, he's just really knew all about it. And so he saw that textiles was going to go away after the quotas were done for, you know, as part of the WTO. And so way in advance, he started working, he started working with the governor, he started working sort of on a very vertically integrated way to start trying to sort of say, okay, well, what assets do we have here? Because we're not going to have textiles jobs. So, you know, what are we going to do? And he's like, okay, we know how to manufacture. 
So they started trying to attract foreign investment that involved manufacturing. But they also, at the same time that they were looking at that, one of their big selling points is we have these technical schools and community colleges. We're going to like gin those up more. And part of what they were saying when they were, you know, pitching to various companies, many of whom are there now, was, look, you know, we can train your workers. We have people who know how to manufacture, but we can train them precisely to what you need. And then they got Clemson University and they got University of South Carolina to start working on applied science that was directly related to to the things that were being done by the companies they were trying to attract. So they really looked at that. And besides the economic piece of it, they said, we have to have a livable city. And they started thinking about what did that mean? And they built bike paths and they they repurposed a lot of the factories that had been used for textiles into, you know, apartments and the bottom floor being offices and shops. And, and I mean, it's just such a vibrant place. They brought in the arts. They, they really thought it through. And we found the same thing when we went to Pittsburgh. Just an incredible plan, you know, devastated by Japanese steel, and then just completely reborn and looking at their assets and figuring out how to use it. And we found that in other cities too. And the contrast between the cities where either their economic planners, their mayors, whoever was looking at things and saying, okay, this thing is either going to happen to us or it has happened to us. And we need to. We need to have a plan and we need to go forward and incorporating the globalized world and trade as part of their plan. The contrast between the cities who did that and the ones who kind of were like, this bad thing has happened to us and they were kind of stuck in the, it's this bad thing has happened to us was just so dramatic. And so I, like you, I felt super hopeful by looking at that and seeing that that is a place where I think a lot could be done. That's really talking about local leadership and, uh, and, and political leadership that sees the future that people can embrace and work toward together, which is, which is a really encouraging story. Now, you also mentioned that there wasn't much, people didn't sense much federal role in this. So if you, were, if you had an, uh, an elevator ride with USTR Ty, uh, Ambassador Ty's in the elevator with you, she's stuck for a minute. What's your message to her? What's your, what's your elevator speech about the federal role? Well, my elevator speech is you've got to find a way to reach out to people and not just be spinning them because they sense that. And you have to be able to find a way to bring facts to people and to involve people in the decision-making process and have them see that, in fact, they are being heard. I think that is absolutely key. I think the other piece of this, which may not be USTR, is we really need, as a federal government, to look at things from a whole of government approach and not just narrowly look at, okay, this is this is what we're negotiating on the table, but what's the impact of this gonna be? Positive, negative, admit that there might be something negative and have some sort of plan for helping people to adjust to that. That's more than just, here's some money, go retrain yourself. I have a final question. Bill, I don't mean to step on you, but uh, just could you talk about, since you did your interviews before COVID and during, did you see any changes because of the pandemic? Did people 
have a different view of the world or a different view of global sourcing or something like that? Was there anything noticeable? Not really. And again, that's one of the things that really surprised me. I expected, you know, when, when we asked people, well, what are the big issues? They weren't that dissimilar from the issues pre-COVID. You know, people were, as you said, Bill, they were worried about health care. A lot of people were worried about the lack of civility in general um, in discourse. And again, that didn't seem to go by party at all. And those kind of concerns continued. So we didn't see a huge, a huge change at all. And in some ways, that's reassuring. Yeah. Yeah. Did you run into lack of civility in your own conversations? No. And that was really interesting. Again, I kind of expected that. But, you know, we didn't approach the conversations, like I said, as we're trying to spin you or we're trying to lecture you. It was like genuinely like we really want to hear from you. And so, you know, then people, as they would talk, they would ask questions in a very calm way. And, you know, I would try to answer them or whoever else was doing the listening would try to answer them just like I said, in a very factual way. So we did not we did not find hostility, I think, because people felt they were being heard. Let me come back before we close, come back to the the adjustment issue that you mentioned a couple of minutes ago. I've been a big supporter of the adjustment system assistance program for a very long time. I spent you know most of my 20 years on the Hill either trying to save it, defend it or expand it, depending upon what year it was. I have to say, it doesn't really get that good a review from experts. And I wouldn't say it's a consensus because I don't, I for one don't entirely agree with it, but uh, it seems to be, the view seems to be that it really has not done a very good job of helping people uh, reskill and and find new employment. What needs to happen to make it work better? You come away with any bright ideas? I think that problem is, isn't just that there's trade adjustment assistance. I think the problem is that it's by itself. And so if all you've got is, I'm gonna help you reskill, but you're living in a place that has no plan for, for what it's gonna sort of do, reskilling isn't really gonna help you that much unless you wanna move. And so I think, I really think there needs to be much more whole of government. That trade adjustment assistance is is a good part of things. I think having training through community colleges and sort of having forward looking kinds of things, we saw that and what that can do. So that stuff is all good, but there needs to be a larger look at sort of the community and what's the partnership the federal government can have with that to help the community look in a more, you know, in a revitalizing kind of way. And that is what I think is missing. Um, and communities are doing it on their own, but some aren't. Some are just, you know, they're they're just kind of stuck in a, okay, this, this thing has happened and we're just gonna be here. And sometimes there isn't an acknowledgement that the past isn't going to be recreated and that we have to actually run towards the future, whatever that future is, it's gonna be different than the past somehow. But I think that trade adjustment assistance situated in something larger would be much more effective. Sounds like um, kind of a leadership question. You know, if you've got a good mayor and somebody who's uh, looking ahead, maybe something can happen. But if you don't have that kind of leadership, it sounds like uh, nothing's going to happen. Is that the difference? 
I think it's a big difference. I mean, that's one of the things that, that personally I came away with this is that actually individuals matter and that communities matter and that communities can be pulled together, but partly people need information. And I think that the people that we talked to in cities that had kind of moved forward, we asked them, you know, do you, would you prefer things the way they were before? Nobody wanted to go back, which I thought was really interesting. And, you know, Scott, to what you said, very hopeful in the sense that people are okay with change as long as they can see a benefit from it. Yeah, that's, no, it's, it's really encouraging. And look, th this is, this is what you've done is incredibly helpful. It is so time intensive. I, as an old consumer products marketer, focus groups take a lot of time and effort. They, there's no easy way to get this information. And so, you know, thanks from the whole trade community for doing what you did to to give, make this available and to, to tell this story. I think it's incredibly encouraging for for those who have fought the battles over the years. So, thanks for doing it. And how can we help you get your message out? This is one great way. <laughs> we do have a few subscribers here, so we, yeah, I hope you get some calls afterwards. Is there going to be a second act, Kathy? Is there more to come or is this it? There would be a second act if we had funding. So <laughs> so that, that's sort of always the, you know, the bottom line. But um, I think we're open to a second act. I think it could be really helpful. I think really, I think what would be really interesting is if you could get like a, a trade core kind of going a volunteer kind of core of people like us who've done this for a long time and maybe start advising some of these cities that are stuck in how to put this into a piece of their plan. Obviously, we're not, you know, city planners, but I think that trying to put those pieces together could really be transformative. Well, that's great. You know, uh, Richard Baldwin of the Geneva Institute, trade economist, says that cities are the factories of the 21st century. It's cities that where globalization will actually happen. And that bears out in your research. The cities that have their act together and embrace the world, embrace those opportunities, seem to be succeeding. So there's something in there that we probably ought to work with you to, to uh, bring to fruition. But, the, but this has been terrific. Thank, thanks so much for coming on the, the podcast. And uh, we look forward to seeing what happens next. Great. Well, thanks for having me. If you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.